A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point this week would be at chapter 66, which ends very, very unfortunately. So if you don't know that unfortunate accident, well, incident, I should say, that happens at the end, don't press on. But if you have, listen and don't get mad at us. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I can't believe you called that an accident first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's a tough, it's a tough ending to this week. You, you revealed to me today or yesterday during a phone call with me that Correct. you very intentionally made sure all the all of the endings for the uh sections are downbeats which you know makes sense but i feel like it's not that tough to do with this book <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't i didn't want to like let that on early of course that that was a thing but it was definitely a consideration as i was going through i was like all right so we have to end this with the moment where Daxo's beheaded, we have to end this with the moment where, you know, it's just like, and this one, and this one, and this one, as often as possible. And try to space them out as best as possible to make it, you know, conducive for the episodes, too. Mm -hmm. The one exception I feel like is Severo's Palace. But, or the Goblin's yeah, that's Palace, kind of, or whatever it's called. That's kind of a lifter, because I couldn't make the other bit work. Uh, yeah. otherwise so i couldn't there yeah there are reasons because otherwise we would have had a very long week on a rogue week so that's kind of pro <laughs> you're, you're saying we haven't already had we really didn't just weeks. have a long week with severo's palace no you're right we did just have a long week with severo's palace uh so <laughs> today is our 10th episode covering dark age by pierce brown and we are going to tackles tackle tackles tackle chapter 59 through 66 but before we do that pj Let's talk about what we're drinking. Let us do that. So I have a cocktail just to kind of sip on. I made it pretty weak. Just a standard whiskey sour. We've talked about whiskey sours a shit ton, so I'm not going to linger on that. But what I do have is 2015 Indeed Brewing Company Rum King. It's an imperial stout aged in rum barrels. And oh boy, oh boy is it good. Ooh. Very, very good beer. Rum King. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. I I almost wish I would have saved this to drink with you. You fucking didn't. We have so many, so much beer to drink together, though. So it's, it's um, true. It's true. Crossland in two days is dry, or is flying to Minnesota. So I'll get to see him for uh, a couple weekends. Yeah. For the first time in almost a year. Yeah. 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 I think so. Just about. Yep. Basically, since almost since we like started the podcast, actually, I believe. Hold your horses there. Two minutes. All my horses are being held. Hold them don't tightly like in your hands. They are. Okay, now it's strong. October, so this comes out still in September. Okay, we are getting so close to our uh, 
our two year. So two year, you know, or sorry, year, <laughs> our actual published year anniversary yeah. of uh, of the show and everything. So very very excited That'll for be. what that brings. That'll be fun. Yeah, man. So I am also having kind of an old standard by and large here. I am having an elderflower gin and tonic, which is something that I've made a lot. This time, because I didn't want to store the tonic because I figured it would decompress, I actually just bought a bottle of elderflower tonic uh, from my grocery store and a single lime to make this drink. <laughs> and just wanted to see like what the other elderflower tonic tasted like. And this is satisfactory. You could totally buy this from a grocery store and not go through the arduous process of making the elderflower tonic and have something pretty close. So... Nice. Good to know. And then to follow that up, I have a double dog again, because still drinking mm-hmm. the shit that's in the fridge. Them's the rules. Them's um, the rules. So am I, but, you know. You just have a fridge with more things in it. Sitting on them for years. Yes. Yes, yes. Hoarding them like a dragon. I'm a beer dragon. <laughs> a big old beer dragon. Mm-hmm. But, but you keep them cold, not warm, right? Because like they land um, the cold for. Well, I mean, I keep them primarily out in the in the uh, back basement. About fifty five degrees is what you're hoping for, constantly. Cellar temperatures, like cellaring wine. Yeah, fair point. All right, so with that, we'll move into last week's predictions. So we've got a couple here to pay up. One, the first one is ultimately some a reflection that you made on Lysander. He and the Arcosian Knights will find a way to escape their current predicament, predicament and together will fight a Hydra. And? Um, they did one of those things. Are you they, upset that they haven't fought the Hydra? I am so upset they haven't fought the, the Hydra. I want, I want that Hydra... I want them to eat the Hydra. They did fight some bats, though. Some pretty <laughs> spooky bats. Spooky bat. They didn't fight the bats. They Well, they shot the bats, and the bats, you know, did the Batman thing. Mm-hmm. The bats that have been pooping for 100 meters straight. Yes. Yes, or, those. 30 meters? I think 30 meters of guano. Fucking yep. ridiculous. That's so much poop. <laughs> <laughs> um you're you're right that is a lot of shit Mm -hmm. uh and then the next one here we we said we kind of asked the question both lysander and darrow remain on mercury what happens to both of them there you said i think darrow ends up rescuing lysander inadvertently when he learns of alex's survival somehow it's so interesting because you're close i'm close to the outcome I am not close to the process by which they get there. Really, Lysander yes. rescues Alex and brings him to Darrow is effectively how it goes. So same characters, same end result, completely different process. So I think yeah. I, I'm effectively wrong, but close. I would say you're effectively wrong in uh, in the one case. And what did we say in the first case? Are you technically wrong about the Hydra? I mean, you're kind of right about the Darkozy Knights. But... I mean, I'm wrong about the Hydra. I was mostly leaning on the Hydra. I want the Hydra <laughs> Crossland. Like, <laughs> I will openly admit, even in the face of potentially getting a correct answer, in saying that I'm wrong because there ain't no Hydra fight yet. <laughs> All right. So you drink for both of those. Yep. 
Cool. With that, let's get into the chapters. Up front, promise this week will not be as long as last week. You shouldn't <laughs> promise that. Anytime we say that, anytime we talk about how this week's going to be a pretty short, quick week, it's the longest fucking episode we've had so far. So, there's no way we go longer than last week's episode. There's zero way. You are absolutely jinxing us and... uh <laughs> I don't you think you're prepared for my for lawyers it. if we go that long. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's no way we're going four and a half hours on this. <laughs> cool. I, I think I think release time it comes out to like three or just under three. But yeah, we recorded for four and a half hours last week. Correct. Yes. But it does. Oh. Yeah, it's at like two fifty six or something like that. After Andrew adds the intro outro, I'm sure it'll be pretty close to that three hour mark. Which I think our longest episode before that was like 246 or something like that, uh, which was the episode with Hale Reaper, I believe. Oh, well, that makes sense because they're fun. They're fun people. Yeah. So with that, chapter 59, Lysander the Impaler. This chapter, I think, in many ways serves as kind of a, a crux of opinion on the differences between Darren Lysander, between even the rising in the society remnant as it stands lysander is spending his free time trying to mentally peel apart the knights of elysian while his dna is being ripped asunder by the leftover radiation he's left kind of bald as well as being you know torn apart by all of this that's going on he obviously makes some pretty big assumptions about the knights as well and talks about their opinions in an incredibly demeaning way inside of his own sort of bubble yeah so within this section in in his own sort of monologues or inner monologues, I guess it's pretty clear here that Lysander not only has a real strange sense of privilege inherent within him, he seems to assume that if anybody had an overall positive life within the society, that they shouldn't feel any sort of sense of injustice from the society. Like he, he talks about knowing reds and browns that were happier than most golds that he's ever met. And somehow he feels like that means that they shouldn't be fighting against the society. I don't know. It, it, it came off really, really strange to me in his understanding of the world and how how people interact with it, you know? Yeah, it shows that inherent privilege. It shows his sort of inherent bias. And I think that it also this kind of this is a moment for me in which I think Lysander kind of shifts into being a very very real about his opinions and the steps that he has to take to execute them like he becomes so much more direct this chapter as opposed to kind of the hoity-toity sort of up in the air thought process this is kind of when he converts to a man of a man of action in a lot of ways to kind of take steps towards you know what he wants to see yeah i, know. I just hmm. yeah it's fair it just that those comments about the low colors seemed really no, out of yeah. place and odd i could not agree with you more i think that it's it, it, well it's it's not it's not that i think that they're did you feel like they were odd like did you actually what what's odd about them to you i feel like he's been thinking and saying a lot of these things but now that he's kind of tortured he's put he's being pushed to like the limits and so he's like he's kind of being duh and matter of fact about those opinions as opposed to I, I feel know, like this is about the them. first time that those opinions have extended to other colors. He's always talked about sure. gold society and what it meant to be gold and how the golds have deviated from what their 
initial like mission was. But this this takes it a step further in a really kind of strange way, in my opinion, because he's not talking about what it means to be gold and shepherding the other colors. He's talking about complacency within within the society because they're happy and they, they shouldn't feel the injustice and shouldn't feel like they need to rebel against the society because they're happy within the society. That's that's a great point. His quote too, where he's talking about that happiness is also one that points to him thinking kind of like anecdotally like, oh, yes, the, the red and brown friends that I have live great lives. And it's like, well, it's not every red and brown, you moron. It's it feels like a very direct parallel to any number of anecdotal pieces of evidence that can be provided in, you know, an argument. Exactly. But it's also assuming that even if those red and browns have a good life. Or it's it's saying that because those red and browns have a good life, they shouldn't be upset about other reds and browns having bad lives. That's that's definitely true. And then the extension therein that like the grays had it worse, so they should be thankful that they weren't the grays. But like that's that's backwards thinking by the same logic, right? It exactly. And for somebody as intelligent and seemingly logical as Lysander. That seems so off. I don't know. It just didn't seem to click with what I understood him to be. Yeah. No, I, and I, I think that this is kind of a victim of him being tortured, right? Like, it's it's kind of coming out. These raw, more raw feelings, I think, are escaping in part. Um, because I think that a lot of this chapter starts out with kind of a very damaged Lysander tone. Like, he's not holding it together. So He's, I am- he's on the verge of breaking, even. I've got an interesting thought here because mm-hmm. of the way he um, he talks to Darrow during the interrogation later under his his assumed personality. He has those comments about like, hey, could you bring me some pinks and blah, 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 blah. Like, I wonder if he's, for the lack of a better term, method acting in that sense, really trying to take on the persona of an uppity gold high society, like spoiled brat. And it's that he's letting that permeate into his own inner monologue as well. I think he, ooh, okay, because he kind of does that later too, a little bit, right? When when he's talking about Cato in the third person, when he's being interviewed by Darrow. Yeah, that's what I. Uh, maybe maybe we're thinking about different aspects of that same conversation when he's talking to Darrow. But Darrow asks him if he could get him anything, and he says a couple of pinks, something like that. Yes, yes, but he also, earlier on in the conversation, he refers to himself as, like, needing to play the part of Cato, and he refers, there's some particular line that rubs me as I'm talking about himself, and we can we can definitely talk about it when we get there, but I don't think that this is him playing the part. I think that this is just it coming out. Okay. Okay. That was just kind of a spur of the, spur of the moment. Yeah. Time. No, but it's it's good, and I think especially bringing that up as it is later, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, that just it, it felt out of character for him. Here, here's the here's the little tidbit, by the way, that I was talking about. I looked down to signify submission, then up to signal betrayal, then down as Cato realizes he can't match a legend's gaze. Darrow's used to this, and I make sure my hands play their proper role, knowing very well how the jackal lost his hand. So that's within the interview, of course. But mm-hmm. you know, it does kind of man that adds Lysander the, to the unreliable narrator list a little bit, but he's not he's not being unreliable. He's actually communicating. I don't think it's unreliable. I think he's yeah. 
he's very clearly taking on another persona and Mm -hmm. this is him doing what he can to personify somebody that he's not sure which he's also doing here of course in the chapter that we are talking Mm -hmm. about as well right so after more torture that almost breaks lysander into telling the arcosians truth the truth and telling him that he's actually lysander atlas out raw releases lysander from his torture for a bit of respite lysander immediately starts peeling him back with the mind's eye and his memories of the fear nights that he recalls we get some nice kind of flashbacks and some some like small explanations behind why the fear knight is the way that he is talking about the coupier belt talking about a number of different components uh, but then he says some the fear knight responds with something peculiar as lysander is kind of picking him apart and tearing him down he says stop that unless you want me to do it back oh fuck oh god oh no that's a pretty amazing reveal <laughs> That's a pretty great way to reveal that there's another acolyte of the mind's eye. Like that was that was well done. I liked the way that that was revealed. I totally agree with you. And the the question that I have is like, how? How did he get here? How did he get the mind's eye? How did we arrive at the situation where Atlas Outraw? who was exiled for, for a long time, who was an abducted child of the... Well, not abducted, but basically a prisoner of Octavia to keep the Rim loyal. Y- you know, like, how did all of this happen? Well, where did Octavia learn it from? There is that question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't disagree. We don't know that answer. Atlas is closer in age to Octavia, right? I mean... That's a stretch. I think Octavia is 100 and Atlas is 50, 49, if that's what you're going for. Well, no, all I'm, all I'm saying is the person that taught Octavia, it was when she was a child, right? Yeah, I want to say it might have even been her father, but I don't strictly remember. I don't, I don't know. All I'm saying is it could be a different person that knew about it and knew how to, how to use it. And knew how to teach it. That is since gone. Okay. But also, even so, Lysander being Octavia's only student or only uh, disciple, disciple. Continue with your in that light. in that yeah. sense. Um, they're separated by if he's fifty, they're separated separated by thirty years. Mm-hmm. Like easy enough to just kind of ignore that. Because he's exiled, because he's gone, he's not around. Why even bring him up? Yeah, yeah, there is that. And then he was also, you know, he was exiled to the Coupier Belt, like you brought up. I don't know. It's it's just such an interesting moment to have kind of appear. Oh, and, uh, for sure. <laughs> God. And in an interesting way, like part of me questions, like, did Atlas arrive here on his own? Like, did Atlas make it to the mind's eye? without the sort of instruction or tutelage and whatnot because because of the exile because of all the shit that he's kind of been through and accumulated i don't know you know no no firm answer there of course but Mm -hmm. it's a thought at the very least in the back of my head yeah i I feel like if that was the case if if it was the case that he came upon it independently he wouldn't know what to look for in in what somebody else was like what what somebody else would look like harnessing it you know Mm, fair point yeah 
So I feel like he had to have been taught in order to recognize when somebody else is doing it. Yeah, yeah. Unless he's, you know, I mean, you can see recordings of yourself and be like, oh, man, I look really dumb. And then you would know that dumb look on someone else. That's fair. Good point. <laughs> but that's that's a weak, weak assumption at best. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you for the most part. I think you're I think it's more there's more potential for him to have been taught. But he's just been so isolated, so removed, you know, for a while that it's there's there's a giant kind of question mark over that. So mm-hmm. we we certainly don't get an answer, but it is interesting to speculate of course right atlas is also just a fascinating vile and strangely through his own methodology a justified man what do you make of this sort of side of him and getting to kind of know him here as this this character inside of this chapter so as far as his own individual personal actions go fucking wolf man like that's a deprived individual, I'd say. But at the same time, his philosophy on war and how it's been sanitized by distance and just isn't as intimate, I guess, is what he's getting at. The feeling, like it's completely washed of feelings. It makes for a really strange juxtaposition of him simultaneously feeling cold and calloused and looking down upon cold callousness within war yet specifically the quote that stuck out to me which was exactly stuck stuck out to me (laughs) was exactly stuck out it stuck out to me uh was distance has sanitized war nearly as much as stone sides fucking ramblings it has made it easy romantic i have no interest in sanitization or romance i apply scientific methods to produce psychological trauma in our enemies in order to create psychological casualties to end their willingness to fight and to shorten this war that is my purpose and it's so interesting because i think that there's a comparison a bit later too that happens maybe it's when darrow's looking at the man when he's looking at atlas and he's like you know he understands he he at the very least gets it like this is this is fruitless in a number of ways you know with the with the lives expended and whatnot so i don't Mm -hmm. know He's clearly got a lot going on. And I was thinking about this a little bit earlier today. And inside the community, Apollonius is well, well, well loved as, you know, kind of the the poet villain of sorts as the Minotaur and, and built up to, you know, be this crazed, crazy older brother to, you know, Tactus and, and this fantastic character. But to me, Atlas, like you said, cold callousness, I think, is a great way of of kind of putting it, he's got this very distinct edge to him that just shocks me and intrigues me in a fascinating way. He is one of my favorite villains, if not my favorite villain in this entire series. He's so, so smart and intelligent, but also philosophical and profound. And he's not. So first of all, I love him straight up. Like, I love this character. Mm-hmm. I really, really like how this guy's written. And uh, just, like you said, intriguing and very well written. But he doesn't have that that twist that Apollonius has. With Apollonius, when, when Apollonius is talking, he just feels creepy to a certain extent and and twisted, I guess. A little sick in the head. 
he just seems Atlas just kind of seems grounded and real and terrifying, no less, but not not in a way that's like cartoonish, I guess. I don't don't know if it's the right word to call Apollonius cartoonish, but in comparison, he kind of is. Yeah, I I know what you're getting at with with like cartoonish. I think that that's just a a facet of Apollonius's ego, you know, like showing. And it it does give him this sort of, I don't know, he's grandiose, grandiose. He's eccentric. Eccentric is probably the word. And that that makes him feel like you could question intent constantly like you have to kind of like go back and be like okay did he mean that was he saying something else versus there's there's something very direct about the way that atlas speaks everything is is razor sharp like he even he stops for entire minutes inside of this conversation just to sit mull over what was said and then responds yeah that's yeah. also fantastic when given kind of the proper weight as you'd like consider the way that he, he approaches these situations. Ugh. They um they they talk about a lot here. They catch up on a lot of things that I think you you could almost summarize in ways that are summarized later about Lysander's tale to kill Rostis. You know, it's like, ah, yes, I tell him my tale. Uh, here we instead see a different kind of conversation unfold with Atlas in which every individual detail is kind of unpacked with him. And we see the way that he, th- that he thinks about all of those different details and components of war. We go through and we talk about the rim and sort of Diomedes and the death of Serafina, wishing to get to know them. Uh, the the sort of death of his brother as well, taking the steps out to or the walk out to the dragon's um, dragon's tomb and sort of the way that he was behaving. We see all of these different components. And then we also get a kind of final moment of what the fuckery that happens inside of their regular conversation of catch up in which. He just drops that Ajax and Atalante are fucking and Alice had no control over it, has never had any control over it and has no desire now to try to control it because it happened during his various absences when he was exiled into the Coupier belt and was unable to be a father. And so he's it's just so, so cold and hard and can't imagine dealing with that, of course. Um what do you think about it? Well, all there's a lot there. I mean, there right? there's a lot to unpack in it. To be to be perfectly like frank about it, but up until this point, this series has had almost everything going for it. But now there's incest, so it is like the full package. You know, <laughs> like well done, Pierce. You've, you've rounded it out. It's got everything a great story needs. <laughs> a little bit of incest to round out all the the political intrigue. You know, it's yeah, got exactly. to be there. Like you gotta you gotta include aunt fucking. You know. Yeah. I mean, a it's it's depravity that we we haven't really known inside of the series. You know, from any other perspective. Um, and it's I it's, feel like early on. I feel like in Red Rising, we talked about incest at one point in passing and not in specific terms, but I feel like it was mentioned about gold society and incest. Yeah, I think that there was actually something about how do they how do they keep the bloodlines pure or something like that, because there's obviously going to have to be. And then I think it was like Board of Quality Control or something like that ended up being an answer to the question. Sounds right. I can't remember. Sounds reminiscent. I just remember making incest jokes at one point. 
Uh, I don't know if that ever made a cut into the into the show or if that was just me and you on the phone. Well, but. fair point. <laughs> this was a year uh, ago, it, man. <laughs> true. Do I remember what we were talking about a year ago? Not exactly. No. <laughs> what Not do you Red Rising? Red Rising. Yes. Yes, there at this go. point, about a year ago, we were talking about Red Rising. <laughs> What what do you make? I, did you have any other favorite moments here that was shared between Atlas and Lysander when they were chatting um, and catching up about all the details? So I, I think I, there was a mention of Red Woman. What was her name? Oh yes, definitely want to talk about that for sure. So there's the carvings of which are crazy, and he like takes a, a tone with them that I think is very stoic and I find it interesting that he's the one that kind of measures things this way with the red woman, right? He specifically brings up Deidre, right? Which is that red woman that he has carved and Atlas calls her a tough woman repeatedly, but Lysander is totally caught up in the definition of the, the actual color. Yeah. It's like she, she was a tough woman for a red tough woman. Mm -hmm. I think that was the, the exchange, something very close to that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's almost entirely the exchange. And he asks the question for a red, and then he says, like, are they trophies? And he's like, no, they're not. They're meditation. And it's, you know, preyed upon me for my prejudices. But he also says, a zealot, and she, he replies, a soldier. And I think what's so interesting here is that, specifically talking about Deidre, it reminds me of a Stoic principle that we talked about a while ago of reduction to understand what a thing is, right? Like wine is just dead grapes, like old age, dead grapes. Your steak in front of you is just dead cow, etc. You know, he does similar things with kind of the boiled bat meat. He's like, what's it taste like? Boiled bat meat. No, he's like bat. And it's like he just kind of nods and continues, you know, I don't know. It's mm-hmm. it's so interesting to consider his philosophy because it's just like so just up his sleeve on his not up his sleeve, but rather on his sleeve. He's, he wears it so plainly. Mm -hmm. And equally as interesting is Lysander trying to put any sort of terminology into an us versus them kind of deal. So zealot versus soldier and, the attribution of tough woman for a red versus just tough. I think it really shows how understanding of all of this Atlas really is and how he's he's really able to analyze who somebody is and what their in individual motivations are as opposed to, oh, I disagree with them, so they're, they're the bad guys. So we, we can reduce them to or abstract their their motivations into something that's just inherently bad and we'll fight it he's able to sort of break that down a little bit more and still be a fucked up maniac you know like he's he's able i mean he sees this just as a a mechanism right like he even sees he doesn't like war he doesn't enjoy war but he's trying to get to the result as quickly as possible. And so he's using drastic measures to do so. And that's, I think that's what's also so terrifying at about him is that there's almost nothing he's unwilling to do. We kind of get an answer to that a little bit later, but I, I'm with you on the sort of the, his ability to 
take apart that abstraction and he brings it up more with darrow later too when they're when they're talking and they're having that conversation about you know the conquered and the conquerors and there's just so many different moments when it's he is just proving to be this brutal intellectual yeah Hmm. yeah what's the quote how can you understand a man that's at war with himself that one tears apart me because it also it, this it points to our theme that we've been talking about with Darrow forever, right? Like he is, he's got these two sides of him that are poking at each other and fighting to figure out which one deserves to live. Mm-hmm. It's understandably impossible to really break down because it's, it's effectively two different people with conflicting ideas and at any given moment, one's going to be beating the other. Man, it, it, all of this makes me really, really, really like Atlas. Yeah, I think I think the tough part here as well is, you, you know, there there are obviously a lot of quotes that are lovely. There's the he's trying to figure out, you know, about the the city after discussing sort of the omnicide that's being planned for the city of Heliopolis and sort of removing Darrow from the equation that's going to happen in five days and. I I think that it's so interesting that he's decided as well that those lives are worth saving regardless of like casualties that might happen in the conflict provided they can, you know, do so because they're from Mercury. They're not from Mars. They're not the ones that like rose up, rose up and started a lot of this. This is, you know, there's, there's no point. Mm -hmm. Also, I forgot to mention this, but his scar from ear to ear around his neck, like, Ooh, uh, mm. Mm. also just an interesting descriptor, but you know, he mentions of course of Lysander an idealist don't fret. It's a temporary condition. And then they cook up this plan to potentially beat out the chemical attack. And Atlas kind of willingly decides to go along with it being this Trojan horse, because if Lysander can do it, it's the best shot at saving the most people. And also speaks to the, the sort of, stance that he's willing to take on on fighting and ending this war is as kind of effectively as possible with his little lives lost you know that's that's something i don't know if i get off of him i get end this war as quickly as possible but i don't read with as few casualties as possible i i think okay so in comparison i think that when he's speaking about the forests, right? He says that he only impaled Martians. There's no Mercurians on those poles. Okay. There's yeah. no, there's no cruelty. He's, he's not, I mean, it is a cruelty, but he's not being egregiously cool, cruel. He's being as cruel as he needs to be in order to accomplish his goals, which is the end of this. Right. Cause he sees it as, sees it as fruitless. I believe it was, um, I think it was Atlantia, Atlantia who mentioned it earlier and said that he was more of a scholar than a warrior to begin with. And that feels very true. I mean, the more that we talk with him, yeah. he's, it's not to say that he's not a very, very scary and intimidating fighter as we've seen him before against Darrow, but he and a fucking also like terrible person, of course, with all the crazy shit he's done in order to accomplish his ends. It's a very like did the means, you know the ends and the means meet i don't know there's a quote later that totally matches up with this for sure there's also one servant for 20 million citizens is an easy math which is also what he says referring to his own life yeah for 20 million other lives you know i don't know that's where i see the that's where i see his choice to save people 
Yeah, that's fair. That's that's totally fair. Just kind of moving forward a little bit. He's he's agreed to this plan with Lysander without really like they don't really talk about the plan so much. They mention what ends up being the path that they take as a totally absurd thing that would there's no chance that would work. Like these are the things that would have to fall into place in order for me being a Trojan horse to work. Um, But they don't really discuss much more than that. And they're, they're just, they seem to be just kind of in sync in that way in that they understand here are the steps that need to happen in order to follow through with that idea. So they engage in that razor battle, not razor battle, just kind of a fight. Yeah, fist general. fight, brawl. Yeah. Yeah, because neither of them had razors, did they? There's a hosta on the wall, and I think technically yeah. the Bologna razor was like on the ground somewhere. Yeah, but neither of them are fighting with them. Mm-hmm. So it's there, but but Lysander is using aspects of the Willow way. Cravat. Um, but yeah. Was it Cravat? Yep. Yep, you're right. Never mind. Still. He also recognizes that uh, Atlas is using a Cravat hold, one in that was Cassius's favorite, which yep. also is a brilliant move on atlas's part because he's like oh you'll probably know this one you know like there's just some small things like that that just tickle me pink with atlas's perspective yeah but there was no no discussion on like hey we're actually gonna fight here so it seems more realistic when like you guys come across my body which is interesting but at the same time lysander's like description of what happened doesn't line up with the actual fight. So, like, why did they even do that? Because he he describes hitting him in the head with a pot in order to knock him unconscious. So what was the point of actually fighting? I I think the point of actually fighting is that he wanted to make it look real on both of their parts. So... Okay. What's what's interesting to me is that this entire scene actually reads more like a Guy Ritchie movie in a lot of ways. You know, like, this entire next segment, I imagine almost most clearly as a Guy Ritchie movie where it cuts from the description of what's going to happen. Okay, so you're going to try to take my body out, and you're going to do this, and we're going to be the Trojan horse, and then you might cut to them on the grab bikes and, you know, the next chapter, and then you cut back, and it's like, yeah, and they're going to believe that I beat the shit out of you, and so then you cut between, like, A and B, and then they're, like, what? on the bike, and he's under the tarp, and, you know, there's all these... I, I just see all those different components coming together. And like you said, it's not as though they're planning out loud necessarily, it's that Atlas understands at a deep level the strategy that Lysander, the 20-something-year-old, is considering and just knows it. Yeah. Because he knows but, how to think through it. But just to kind of push back on that a little bit, Lysander basically says that he took him by surprise and hit him with a pot or hit him like hit him with some pottery. Like he He does not talk about being in a fight with him at all. No, he talks a lot about being in a fight with him. They're literally in a fight on the ground. When when he's talking, when he's explaining what happened to Alexander. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, right. like, he doesn't mention being in a fight. And the body that's on the ground, the unconscious body on the ground, if they were to do some more examinations, wouldn't look like a body that got hit with a piece of pottery and fell down. What was the point of the fight? I don't well, get I think it. that was that was kind of Ignatius's point, right? Like he was trying to peel it apart more. Do you get what I'm like? What I'm getting at? 
it just yeah i'm trying to i'm actually trying to find it here is what i'm okay for okay i think the pots later in the interview i don't think it's here yeah pretty sure because i don't see anything within this chapter and they don't talk about it in the next chapter of course while they're flying around i don't think but i i think i think the reason that you do you do the the fight is to make it actually look real right regardless yeah that's that's true but giving that example or that that explanation of what happened but that's to a robot <laughs> you're right good point you know that he that he claims to be able to trick if it if it were I, I was like oh shit if that's alexander you're right like there's if he has to explain the pot and everything else like that's not a good idea yeah but it's to the robot like, okay okay i think so i'm looking at it now that's the Sorry to like throw this like wrench at you. No, it's good. I like didn't I didn't know what you were talking about. That's why I was like, what? But that makes sense. Overpower, I didn't. I hit him in the head with a figurine, then I choked him. He makes figurines. He's an absurd man. That's what he says. It's 527 when he's questioned by the bot. Hit him in the head with a figurine, then I choked him. I mean, it's effectively what he did. I mean, he's not. He. I don't think he hit him with a figurine, but he did choke him. Yeah, he definitely choked him. Yeah. He had originally planned to hit him with a figurine, but he I don't think ended up doing that, of course. But mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't know. We so we move on from the the section of course with uh with the capture and we run back to the moment in which Alexander and the Elysians are freed by Cato and they kind of scoop everyone up to head into the next chapter. I think that this is when we we've kind of talked about a lot of his acting happening in various capacities and this is when it really starts one of the first things of course being his in seeming inability to like wield a razor. Yeah, that was despite being a loyalist. Really really kind of fun how he clumsily just completely dispatches both of the guards. Uh uh-huh, like cart like definitely fucks up one dude but like kind of only half kills the other guy and then has to finish him off yeah but very unintentionally intentionally severs his windpipe in the uh Mm -hmm. in the clumsy first slash at the other guy very very cool way to describe all of that this is one of those things that without god what would you have to do how would you translate this to screen this is all acting right because like the the biggest thing is like you we've seen probably so at this point you'd have to have proven on screen that lysander is a formidable razor master like he knows what he's doing with the razor then he picks up the razor and kind of acts the goof while the other folks are watching him cutting Mm -hmm. through the one dude and then kind of like cutting into it but he uses he's got to use it like unwieldy like you know when you see a kid who's like a stable boy pick up a sword for the first time and he like doesn't know what he's doing with it it's got to be that kind of energy right and then immediately afterwards breaking down and crying being asked the question by alexander i think makes a ton of sense yeah would you would you have an like a a vocalized inner monologue absolutely not okay so i i think specifically like the description here as they turned back at the sound of my feet, I slashed the head off the first man like I'm felling a tree. So think like a two-handed axe. Like, this okay. sounds really clumsy to me, especially considering how we think about razor wielders, right? And then it, as he's going through the second dude and as he cuts his windpipe, he lodges it in the wall, you know? 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. I can see it. You're right. I think it'd be fine. And then he just kind of hacks at him until he dies. <laughs> and then he yeah. starts crying, which I, I think I think that's all that this would, to your point, I think this would all be up to the actor. Like you would have to have the right person playing Lysander in order to pull this off. In addition to having the action kind of play the way that it is, because you have to be able to tell. And the establishment, like you mentioned, of what a good razor wielder looks like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what Which, and what Lysander looks like wielding his razor in a normal circumstance. Yeah, which we we definitely get some of, of course, throughout this book. So, you know, it's not like we know he's bad. Isn't Chop the Tree part of the Will Away? No, so they they mention the the three things. um, A fool aims for the leaves, uh, chops the... Chops the uh, trunk. Chops chops the trunk, trunk, uh, but a master digs the roots. That's not that... I butchered that quote, but that is is the Lornow Arcos... Marcos roots quote. I have to have to do this right. A fool pulls the leaves, a brute chops the trunk, a sage digs the roots. Okay, so he's playing playing the brute. Playing the brute. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, yeah. Yep. Kind of literally. So. Yeah, I mean, good call. And I think especially getting into this next chapter, and kind of like we were saying, this to me is a very visual section. So with that, let's move into Chapter 60, Lysander, Pup 1. So I think post, per most of our conversation that we were just having, you know, about kind of the, the visual medium that is the the sort of fight uh, that we have with Lysander at the end of the chapter and sort of my recanting of the way that I think that this could be done in a Guy Ritchie style even, which would be fairly interesting. I, I think that this is where this kind of comes together in a big way for me. I think that this section is very visual, complex, and fairly straightforward i mean there's this is an escape this is a a bike scene this is some death and some people getting picked off you know there it's it's a good 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 chapter yeah this is like post dungeon crawl everybody running out of the dungeon kind of deal Mm -hmm. or like the running away on endor the escape on endor and the rescue among like the bikes and everything else it's it's very Mm -hmm. evocative in some specific ways it's very quick so it feels like a montage of of things even though it's just a very quick succession of of things to deal with like it, it feels like you could linger on all of these but they're in a rush and they're being chased and they're in a like they're gonna go as fast as possible so there's just quick machine gun fire aspects of of this escape which is kind of a cool thing to to see. And I think could as, as we talked about adaptation in the last uh chapter, I think this would be really easy to do. I think it would look really really nice in pretty much any way you do it. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a number of ways. This is very straightforward and actually leaves a lot of room for interpretation and and adaptation. I think it's solid. So mm-hmm. You know, again, I don't think that there's a ton to talk about inside of this chapter outside of a couple of different things that we're going to bring up. But one to me is while they're in the caves, Lysander has kind of an interesting reflection after finding the bats and kind of cursing the black market carvers for their ability to create apex creatures that ruin ecosystems and laughs to himself silently considering the implications of what he just thought and said. And it's clear that he's referencing Darrow as also being one of those 
creatures. I, I have no real commentary here, but like, of course, he would say some shit about Darrow and think some shit about like carvers creating demons. Absolutely. Of course he would do that. But that's a really cool insight, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is a good insight. I just wish that Lysander were a spacist asshole, you know? Yeah, uh, spacism <laughs> it, is is a scourge set upon society. To to your point, though, like, yes, it is a very interesting insight and kind of a parallel. It's not a perfect one, though, because while Darrow did destroy the ecosystem and ruin the, the system, it was to set up a new one. It was to devise a new one. And Lysander doesn't have the, the foresight or capability to realize that, like, but so- what Darrow's doing is better than the fascism of society. <laughs> I don't think he he's not taking into consideration the uh the goals at all. But he understands that taking over like displacing an ecosystem inherently creates a new one. That's what these bats did. They dominated the ecosystem and effectively created a new one where they're prominent. And that's what Darrow did as well. It's just that we know Darrow's motivations for it. And we also well, know that I think, the bats aren't intelligent enough to have a specific goal that they set out upon. They just are, and they did what they do, and they're good at it, so they took over. So the, the quote is, men just want to create apex predators because it delights them, but then the predators kill off everything else, overpopulate, and break the ecosystem. I think the, like... Part part that we're not talking about is, like, kill off everything else. Well, he's not. they're not killing off everything. They're not destroying the ecosystem he was overthrowing a government you know like from, but from it is Lysander's a Sanders perspective though that is everything yeah it's and overpopulating like uh, freeing the slaves is running amok like that feels like a i don't know you know like that overpopulation and whatnot the removal of the I, it's Lysander being spacist for sure well yeah of course but i don't okay. think he's i don't think that insight is wrong I think he's got a good point. Does he does he even explicitly say it that he's that he's thinking of Darrow? No, no. But he instead what he says is I almost laugh at the irony. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a clear nod without saying it, which is why I just wanted for anyone who maybe didn't connect that or like buzzed Mm -hmm. over this line, you know. Yeah. The the notes are there and Mm -hmm. you can very clearly see see the path that he's looking at. Mm hmm spacist of course absolutely but i get it i get where he's coming from based on his upbringing and his affinity for the society and his point of view in general but yes like he he is absolutely spacist of course <laughs> i just need to make sure i was like we aren't we aren't siding with lysander's no opinion not, here, at right, that he has not at all <laughs> Not it's siding like, with him uh, in the slightest. I'm just, I'm just saying that he is consistent. I think that's fair. He is, if nothing, consistent. So last week we talked about Mustang's code name, Gold Horse. But this week we get two other call signs and nicknames: Pop One and Anteater. Both are way better call signs than Gold Horse <laughs> per our standards of last week. Of course, this is more of an actual military, but still, like, I couldn't bring it up. I couldn't not bring it up after, like, all the conversation we had about call names, call signs last week. Yeah, absolutely. I I want to know what the actual, like, inspiration for the call sign Anteater is. I'm mm-hmm. assuming 
God, I don't know. Are they calling themselves ants? Like them, not themselves, but like the general population that they're trying to protect? Are they calling them ants and saying he is the ant eater? That's that's an interesting question. Something that I just found out using the Google bot is that uh, anteater also is a suborder of the species vermilingua, which means warm tongue. So maybe warm tongue? Mm. I don't know. It's not good, but it's but what, a fact. What, what would that, how would that be applied? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's better. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's just good that it's unknown, right? It's It can't be easily connected, you know? Yeah, that's true. They just, they just kind of know. But everything else is rooted in something. Pup one is somebody who has authority but is young within the army. Gold horse is horsey lady that's also a gold. That one's pretty easy. <laughs> those are those are the only uh we, we we've got Icarus, right? Yeah from from uh Morningstar. Mm-hmm. What other call signs have we had? We went through most of the call signs last week, to be honest, and I've edited that episode finishing up last night, and I do not remember the rest of them for the life of me, but I do. There are plenty. Okay. Well, I don't feel like (laughs) any of them are out of left field. All of them seem to be rooted in something if you knew anything about them. That is to say that Anteater, I would assume, is rooted in something that Darrow or Darrow's people there's army knows about atlas well okay here's a random thought anteaters kind of impale anthills no with their tongue i mean i don't know i guess they got weird i noses. guess you could call it impaling they stick their tongue in stuff like yeah it's it's like if a if a mouse fucked an elephant mm-hmm. and then instead of having a trunk it had a tongue instead that was perfectly prehensile Anteaters are probably pretty good at oral sex, huh? Um, <laughs> or really bad. <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> I, I think we're not considering the absolute <laughs> atrocity <laughs> that potentially is anteater oral sex here. <laughs> Reminds oh me in a strange way of like thinking about hummingbird tongues in the way that they're like weird. I don't know. Well, all we know is that they eat them. I don't know anything about hummingbird tongues beyond that. They're really, really tiny. Anteater tongues are freaky looking, dude. <laughs> They're about two feet long oh, and God. shaped like a sp- strand of spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, San Diego Zoo, for that image <laughs> in my head forever. I hurt. So, uh, good. so there, there are like a lot of different moments, of course, that happen here with the bats, with Crastus, um, losing him, you know, as, as it kind of happens, Alexander takes off. We also lose Drusilla kind of at the last moment. Crastus as the is grab the bike. one that fell into the bat poop, right? I believe so. That's a shitty way to die, man. Right leg disconnects at the hip. He screams as he loses balance. It topples down into the guano. Yep. Literally the shittiest. I'm getting yeah. eaten by something that lives in bat poop. Right. Bad 
bad bad time but also like very visual like you can imagine that fairly easily it reminds me of something out of star wars actually like the original trilogy yeah i could see that kind of a kind of a moment for sure but yeah i mean there's there's this entirely insane grab big break grab bike race across the desert we also end this chapter though of course with pup one and lysander making it aboard the reaper ship heading to safety at his feet it's exactly what lysander said it's exactly what Atlas and Lysander were talking about as a ridiculous proposition. And they went along with it and it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, like, like you said, it is that kind of ridiculous proposition. And it reminds me of a plan that like younger Darrow would have. It is that bold, ridiculous, absurd, obscene, shoot the star shell through the front viewport kind of a move. Uh, not to, not that brazen though. A lot more just uh, making sure all the puzzle pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. It's not so much brute force. It is a whole lot of coordination and a whole lot of luck. I mean, yeah, there's there's some arguments for other plans being, you know, coordination, combo, luck, you know, like the end of Morningstar. But it, it, it does seem like still a, you know, young Darrow plan. But you're right. It's less the brute force and kind of hope i guess like the luck component is that the people sided with darrow after giving his speech aboard you know well there's also the luck component of the arcosian knights not questioning lysander when he showed them uh the fear knight them getting out of there like they're, they're i'm saying every step of the way was a risk and it was mm-hmm. lucky that they made it yeah but they did so with that chapter 61 yeah. darrow hero of Tyke. i'm not saying that you're discounting the fact by the way that they made it i was just like you're right that that is no, you I know got, i got you i got you cool this chapter seemingly roars as it starts with darrow searching sort of the new second gold at his feet before rushing over to help alexander to safety and medical assistance Atlas also has both of his arms broken by Thraxa for good measure, but the concerns sit with whether or not our hero of Taiki will make it. A little bit later, of course, we find out he survives, but woof, there was a lot that could have gone wrong there as we see, you know, Drusilla bleed out and die inside of the ship and Dara literally run him in physically as opposed to waiting for a stretcher and all of these different small components. I might be just completely misremembering not misremembering, but just straight up forgetting something. Why is he mm-hmm. referred to as the hero of Taiki? Isn't Taiki gone? Correct. But what Alexander did that got him captured in the first place is he stayed behind and rescued people by ushering them beneath the tunnels that led to Heliopolis underneath the mountain range. Gotcha. Okay. When Taiki was drowning near the beginning of the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was like 400 pages ago. So I don't blame you. That was a yeah. whole red rising ago. Red Rising isn't 400 pages long. No, it's like 360 or something like that. Is it even that long? It's about that long. Okay. Anyway, I just, I, I couldn't recall. So, that makes yeah, sense. right. Gotcha. He's, he ends up saving, I think, like 100,000 lives or something like that. They they count down, or he counts the number of lives and, and puts it into context that he, he saved a ton of people. It doesn't seem like that many, of course, compared to all the lives that are lost, but you know... The the idea is like more than zero is better, more than no lives saved, and that's why he went for it, you know? Yeah. Within this whole 
sort of first part of this section, though, we we see a lot of Rona going back and forth between Darrow and Lysander, or not Lysander, Darrow and uh, Alexander, mm-hmm. and they they had this budding relationship beforehand, but she was pretty coy about it the whole time, and she she still is a little bit directly to Darrow, but it's way more like out in the open about how much she cares about him and how she feels about him, which is kind of cool to see. It's cool to see that relationship rekindle on, on a sort of one-sided sense because the other guy's unconscious. But her her character feels like we see a lot of growth in just a couple sentences talking about Alexander, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, she gets a ton of a ton of character growth and we get some moments in the beginning, you know, where, of this book where they're like, you know, don't die. And they kind of have these different like survival moments and Darrow's even kind of encouraging the flirting and, you know, kind of making fun of her for it. And this is kind of a great payoff of that in a lot of ways to have this sort of, I don't know, in a way like full circle that she like really cares now that he's back. We We also saw, of course, that she was mourning him, you know, when we thought that he was dead when they were closing the tunnel to to taiki when we uh, thought he was dead well you know when our characters thought he was dead <laughs> i knew he wasn't dead so did you I. assumed he wasn't dead yeah hmm. no i'm just saying that you assumed i just knew because i've already read it so that's <laughs> no I know. i'm giving you <laughs> that's shit. the only reason but yeah i mean it's it's a lot and it's it's great to see that relationship bud great great call there is a, a point later on in in Lysander's perspective. I think it's the next chapter. Just a brief comment where uh, he refers to Rona as a child. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, God, he's like he's employing children in his army now. And then learns that it's his niece and doesn't really elaborate beyond that. But she's young. How old is she? Like 19? Yeah, I think she turned 18 or 19. She was 19 and turned 8, 20 or something like that. Wait, um, so she, so she's the same age as Lysander. What the fuck is he talking about? Well, because she's a red, right? So she looks like a child. She's got to look like almost old. I mean, for by red standards, maybe. But, you know, she looks positively small she's next to them. Small, but I've seen small old people before. I don't assume they're like in 12. You know? <laughs> It also maybe goes to show Lysander's ignorance. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I would think that she would look positively ancient by his sexual standards. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, so with that... <laughs> we've, we've got <laughs> Darrow storms off to seemingly beat the shit out of Atlas, but instead they share an exchange. One of where Atlas says he deserves the punishment he's earned because he's lost. And the second is a quote from Sophocles that I was kind of referencing a little bit earlier, but all of a man's affairs become diseased when he wishes to cure evils by evils. And, to me, so much of this chapter hinges on Atlas's ability to be both an incredibly dark villain and the studied scholar. What do you think that Pierce is trying to get out of us through this interrogation scene? First of all, that's one smart fox. 
Uh, I fucking knew you were going to talk about the fox. I fucking knew it. I should have just put it in a joke why about would the you, fox. Why would you not attribute it to Sophocles, the human being, as opposed to Sophocles, the actual character that exists within this book that we're it's talking about? It's a fox. About? It doesn't have a quote. He's a character. He, <laughs> the fox is everything, Crossland. Don't you forget it. Anyway, um, I think this is kind of leaning into... M- the multiple point of view sort of aspect of this book a little bit more than uh, what's been done in the past, especially within iron gold. We really kind of get a chance to sympathize a little bit with the actual way of thinking of the society. We get some opposing point of views from Lysander, but by his own admission, he's not thinking for the society. He is thinking for gold. And what it meant to be gold in the beginning and trying to bring us back to that. And that is completely different than the capital, the society and what mm-hmm. they thought. Whereas our sort of expose on Atlas's sort of inner, inner thoughts kind of give us that perspective, which is cool and different and just adds this incredible amount of depth to the moral understanding of the story it's not us versus them it's not good versus evil anymore it is completely very independent and well fleshed out philosophies that are at odds with each other and in this case directly interacting yeah yeah and i think that the reason that he kind of recants this line back to him to your point on the philosophies i think part of the reason that he recounts this line back to him there are kind of two ways that i think about it and i think you're right he's playing into the point of views thing here very very directly but if we think about this line he could be using it as a tool to divide darrow further as he thinks about things right which he said the clearest path forward is one of psychological warfare of manipulating our enemies you know that's why he does the the impalements or there's his overt honesty. Yeah, there, but but pair that with the comment from last chapter or two chapters ago, I can't remember which, of how do you deal with a man at, at war with himself or something like that? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, fucking confuse him. Yeah, he throws two different quotes at him, right? He throws the, you know, war gives the right of the conquerors to impose any condition they please upon the vanquished, you know? So there there are multiple interpretations here. That kind of lie in the the perspective of Atlas, and we don't get a firm answer. We do get one that, at the very least, Jarrow was pushed to make a decision, and that decision was to not chop off of his hands. <laughs> yeah, at, with yeah. his spaghetti arms, but yeah. Which man? That'd be that'd be pretty fucking painful, you know, moving around with spaghetti arms. Yeah. Especially after he saw all that happened to Lysander, he chooses not to do that to one of his greatest enemies and i think that's also because he got that quote thrown in in his face of all of all of a man's affairs become diseased when he wishes to cure evils by evils which is so interesting because that is also what atlas is choosing to do no like he is using very evil and vile ends this i feel like this was said to darrow directly as well earlier without being so elegant and I can't mm. remember who said it. Do you remember that at all? Like, I don't think it was even this book. I can't remember. There have definitely been different conversations. It feels like a Lauren thing. Yeah, that could be. I genuinely don't but, remember. Or even perhaps Aja. 
but yeah i i don't remember as well but yeah it's definitely it's a it's a strong quote and it's a strong way for alice to kind of stand out of course he's thrown to the wolves with uh thraxa to exchange ex- extract information from him and kind of continue that path forward we move from there to a conversation that happens about cato al vitruvius and gil rosties gil rosties has particular demands just like his sardines that we fought so hard for last week throughout devro's palace or severo's palace but one of his demands gil rosties will not continue work under any circumstances so long as cato al vitruvius his friend and only pupil is returned to him Dura, of course, scrutinizes Cato deeply, noting that he passes nearly every inspection with flying colors, including a very odd one, signs of Mithridism, which is a practice of poisoning oneself to build immunity against poisons. What do you make of the data dump on Lysander as Cato and kind of Gil Rosti's interest in him? So my first read through of this chapter, I had mm-hmm. completely missed the conversation or the part of the conversation between Lysander and Atlas that mentioned Gilrostes and how Gil- Gilrostes was a friend of Lysander's. Completely missed it. Don't know how, but just did not, did not track with me. So in that read through, I was very, like, I was convinced that the actual Cato Alvitruvius existed as a person was not Lysander and was a pupil of the Gilrastes. And I thought it was going to be a very strange, ironic, weird, weird meeting of everything. And it was just going to be chaos because Lysander would have pretended to be the actual Cato and things would have gone haywire. Mm -hmm. It's still interesting, still very interesting arguably more interesting um, because it completely shifts my understanding of Gilrastes and his allegiances and what he's doing. He clearly didn't actually turn completely on the society because if he had, he would have said outright, oh, that's the like alter ego of Lysander be done with it. So it, it, it created this really strange depth for Gilrastes in that moment beyond what was already there. And I really didn't know what to make of it. I really didn't. I didn't know what to think, but yeah, that first read through, I was very confused. I, I was thinking just a very, very heavy sense of irony was going to hit us hard, but that's more of a, that's more of a thing that I would expect from an old uh, Guy Ritchie film, something like that. Sure. Sure. Something that would kind of strike us in a in a moment that's strange. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that. I think we're going to talk a lot about Gil Rostes and some of these intents and, and allegiances a little bit more later. So I'm going to leave that so that we can we can pick up pick that back up in a little bit here when we can kind of wrap up the week with Lysander. Um, Because I think that that'll fit in very well. It squares away. Yeah. I love it, though. Especially the idea of knowing... I want to bring this up, actually, that you mentioned it. The Knowing, like, the actual Kato and squaring that away. That's a very interesting... Yeah. You know, supposition of sorts. 
With that, we move into chapter 62, Lysander, the Warlord, and the Libertine. Lysander spends a lot of time, this chapter, talking about lying as he's interrogated by the X-1200 Bloodhound and the difference between it being an art and a science. I find it a wide-reaching and fascinating discussion as he talks his way both around the robot and recants back he and, and recants the backing of his false story here to protect him on Mercury in such a case as these that he finds himself in, you know, talking about himself as Cato. Obviously, the X-1200 Bloodhound feels like a reference back to Blade Runner, but w- what do you make of the entire kind of scene? I felt like Lysander's depth here and and really the crazy backstory that he has built and has had built since he was a young child is amazing. And it it all stems back to Octavia. She, as mentioned, is extremely paranoid. But pair that with her incredible cunningness. Cunning? Would it just be incredible cunning? Cunning, yeah. Yeah. It makes for this really, really interesting payoff. I, I guess it's like a decade late payoff. Or decade and a half, probably. If if he was six when he met Gil Rostis. It was it was strangely satisfying to experience that sort of lie coming to fruition. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to understand the sort of implications that come with a lot of this sort of discussion, right? And sort of the planning, the the intense planning that comes around Lysander having this understanding. I mean, I, I think we talked about how even Virginia, having been a pupil of Octavia, understands how far-reaching people will go to extract information, how brutal, you know, society's tactics can be. So that's why she was sleeping, memorizing false information and remembering false dreams and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So you can only imagine that same paranoia being quadrupled inside of Octavia and in such cases as these, that really shitty childhood that Lysander had uh, comes comes to help him out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like it not only comes to help him out, it also knowing at least a little bit of Octavia uh, about Octavia. It seems like mm-hmm. this a situation like this is what that was really intended for. Yeah, right. Without a doubt, it's totally what it was meant for is, you know, this sort of extreme circumstance. So, I mean, it's it's great to see a payoff and it's, you know, it's so it's so funny to think about the fact that like she has constantly had paranoias and backdoors and, you know, was keeping the storm gods as a backup. And, you know, we we also get to see all these machinations, all these plans that Octavia had. But never, you know, had to pull the trigger on. So she had fingers in every pie. Strange, strange question about the definition of paranoia. Does it sure. require it to be unfounded? Mental what? condition characterized by delusions of persecution, unwarranted jealousy, or exaggeration of self-importance, typically elaborated into an organized system. It may be an aspect of chronic personality disorder, drug use, or of serious conditions such as schizophrenia in which the person loses touch with reality. So delusions of persecution. So delusion, meaning untrue delusion doesn't necessarily mean untrue does it i feel like it does but i guess my doesn't a delusion yeah yeah it does a a delusion is a belief that is false so so untrue so well does this retroactively make octavia less paranoid correct 
Yeah, because it's not a delusion. It's no longer a delusion. Okay. It was preparation. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every let's put it this way. I, I love I love this comparison in my own head. Every doomsday prepper, <laughs> when doomsday comes, will not be paranoid. Yeah. They will, in fact, be correct. But they may have, in fact, <laughs> have caused themselves a lot of problem problems and may, in fact you know not not be correct ever and there's no there might be there may never come a time and that's sort of that delusion yeah okay i think the other thing is like exaggerated self-importance as we think about it another one is suspicion and mistrust of people or their actions without evidence or justification okay there's no evidence or justification that mercury is going to rise up against her but we do have evidence that that's happened before and so she implants a safety mechanism to protect well that would be evidence though wouldn't it no, no, that'd be a history. Prior, yeah, and and it's not of the, it's not of Mercury, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not Mercury's doing. Okay, yeah. So. Sorry, that was a a little bit of a deviation, but I was I was curious. Like, is Octavia now retroactively less paranoid? And I guess it makes, by definition, yes. Yeah, I mean, totally. I think mm-hmm. in a large way. She was doing the right things, question mark. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Of course, the the chapter really takes off when Darrow charges into the room to interrogate Cato himself. And I think that this exchange is really incredible. It goes on for pages. It's got a bit of humor to it. It's got a ton of that familiar kind of gold levity that we might have seen from Cicero earlier on in this book or Cassius back in Red Rising the original book um, but it's very familiar to Darrow and knowing what he knows about Gilrastes he decides to let him go it seems um, what'd you make of it what'd you think of the well, interrogation you mentioned the humor the humor is fucking awesome like mm-hmm. right when he walks in and the bloodhound bot is like up in Lysander's face and all he says is, does it work in the corner? I I loved it. I loved Darrow's interactions with the Bloodhound. <laughs> I found it really funny. We talked about before who who Cato is and and the personality that Lysander has kind of cultivated for him. And he's this really slimy, rich, privileged, gold young adult. Mm-hmm. And man, is it cool to see that come out on the page? Oh yeah, because it's so different from what we know Lysander to be. But he seems so—I wouldn't say comfortable in it—but he—he doesn't seem—he doesn't let up in a way that like makes it seem like he isn't comfortable in it. You know, like he—he he sells it really well, really well. One thing that I was really expecting that didn't happen was uh, I I was expecting Darrow to recognize Lysander. And I know Lysander's face has been fucked up quite a bit. But even so, even though Gilrastes knew who it was and he knew what to look for, yada, 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 he mentioned being able to recognize him. And... Uh, who knows if that's true or if it's simply because he'd been made aware of who who this prisoner was and then knew what to look for but i 
I really would have expected Dara to have been able to recognize Lysander. Yeah, I mean, Dara didn't spend a lot of time with him. I would say that that's one component here. Uh, half of his face had burned off. He's bald. I don't think that Gil Rostis recognized him in physicality, of course. And I think that even later when he's like, I'd recognize you anywhere, it's kind of like, would you, though? Like, would you recognize me? Well, I um, mean, that's the same that's the same thing that Diana said to Darrow, isn't it? Yeah, but that's a son. Mm. Yeah. That's a mother's son thing. I that's, don't know. Like that's fair. Good point. And it, I mean, it only it's especially interesting of course because Gil Rostis has an understanding with Lysander. All right, let's move in. We'll we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about this in literally a second. So, <laughs> okay. let's just get there. All right. All right. All right. So that's good. But I'm I'm I understand I totally understand where you're coming from, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's clearly other things at play too that are are hard to, you know, fully measure without talking about the circumstance. So, with that, we move into chapter sixty three. Darrow, unremarkable, just like this entire chapter. Uh, no, just kidding. It is a fun little short chapter here that happens. I loved this when I was originally reading the book and I saw chapter 63 Darrow, chapter 64 Lysander. And I was like, huh, those are, huh, they're facing each other. They're facing each other down in a way right now. That's kind of funny. But there's literally two paragraphs here inside of this entire chapter. So, you know, it does kind of plant a little seed about whether or not they trust Cato and him. But who could the Mastermaker be working for here, and is he really on Darrow's side, is kind of the question that is posed at large inside of these two paragraphs. During this reading, my my initial read-through, my initial thought about that monitor spike when it was applied to Lysander is uh, if he'll be aware of it and how quickly, like, how quickly he'll find out about it. And it turns out it's basically immediately like I think it's within I don't think I had to turn a page before Lysander knew that there was a monitor spike on him. I don't know. That kind of increases the interesting sort of uh, the positioning of the two pages of two different points of views. You don't have to turn a page and you just immediately learn what the other person's thinking. It's kind of a cool experience of physically reading something beyond just hearing the story. Like there, there is some irony within the physicality of the book itself, which is kind of cool mm-hmm. to experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's reminiscent in a way to me as well of uh, the chapter we had a long time ago with Lysander and Darrow and the light resistance component where like we have an entire chapter of like Lysander explaining how he and all of his grays and the golds are being brutalized and, Darrow brushes it off as basically nothing. You know, it's very reminiscent. Yeah, it's similar. I I feel like this is even more intense, but with less uh, consequence, I guess. Sure. That makes sense. With that, chapter 64, (laughs) Lysander to master a maker. So we're finally brought to Gilrossi's home, Lysander's prison for the next couple of days before Atlantia's inevitable omnicide strike And it's a beautiful one, one that Lysander spends a lot of time in alone, contemplating the decisions of Atlantia and the Fear Knight and what to do as he proceeds. I feel like the lengths that he goes to during this chapter to be viewed as just a regular, a regular gold, um, just a bored gold child, 
kind of amazing. He's yawning regularly. He's looking absentmindedly at at the skyline and telescope. And all the while, he is taking everything in and he's quietly doing math about like the sag of the uh, of the objects that he's seeing suspended in the skyline and pretending to read like it is so smart and it's so calculated it's really really cool to see that from a first person perspective yeah i love kind of the way that you're able to kind of both see him like walk around and kind of play the part of of a person that's disinterested again i think we talked earlier about how would you pull this off on screen and this would be a part where it would totally be up to the actor to make it real and to behave not like lysander in a large way and mm-hmm. i think that that could be really really great and a, a lot of great fun that could be had as he like goes in the bath and he's like playing around and doing all of these other things that are fruitless and are actually stressing out lysander in the back of his head as he's kind of considering what he has to do this is another one of those sort of situ- situations where i'm trying to figure out how you would do this without narration over the top of it to know what he's actually thinking because the entire point is to make him look like and seem like he's not actually thinking about anything. Yeah. Right. But we like audience inference. If we know how Lysander behaves, we would understand that this is a different behavior. Right. And so the, the thing that would be hardest to communicate is one in which he would be focusing on the ships that are moving around. And that would be something that's what I'm saying is is less about him acting like he's not who he is and more acting like he's not who he actually is while simultaneously thinking about and really analyzing things as Lysander. That that's how I'm like that's something I feel like you would need external narration to really convey. Uh, You don't. No. So this is I think this is the sort of line between like adaptation and like you you lend the strength to the medium. Right. So how would you portray this? So instead of doing narration, you would show him looking through the telescope and you would have Exeter there and have Exeter ask what he was doing and sort of implying that maybe this is the closest thing to out of character for this character to do it, be doing. Or you have a scene in the cellar and have him explain that he saw the things that were going on and you you would expose it through dialogue instead. That's that's the trick for the most part in okay. in a lot of ways for adaptation is you you expose facts through either dialogue through shifting things entirely away from like focusing on how the ship is getting all the stuff around, you know, instead you have maybe him stumble upon a different detail entirely. They are just components like that where, you know, that what I would do is I would shift it to him having the conversation with Gil Rostes in the basement and say that he noticed it and that he is able to then in that conversation with Gil Rostes recount all of the math and count all the weights and say all of the things. And maybe Gil Rostes applauds him and says that his mind hasn't dulled since he knew him last. You know, it's, okay. it's things like that yeah. that you would do. You're right. It'd have to be an additional scene where he's talking about all the information that he Found and then kind of a uh, flashback sort of style from a different, not different point of view, but different, um, just kind of flashback with the overlay of what he's talking about. I can see it in my head now. 
I can see it in my head and I don't know how to explain it. So that is sure. helpful. Sure. Anyway, we should probably continue. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I love the connotation that's kind of added to to the conversation, of course, once we are actually able to start to think about the way that Lysander is breaking down the plan, right? Which we've kind of talked about a little bit uh, and the way that he's kind of hiding the math behind the notebooks and, and, you know, kind of this interesting sort of juxtaposition of, okay, I'm faking one thing, but I'm actually doing another, you know, while he's being monitored constantly for this whole thing. But Mm. it, it sort of just portrays his genius. Right. And so as we were saying, even an adaptation, what you do is you just have to portray the genius in a different way. So he's incredible. The amount of information that he's able to take in is absolutely incredible. And we know that he's a gifted, crazily gifted child um, from early on in... Is it Morningstar that we're introduced to him? Or are we introduced to him in Iron Gold? Or not Iron Gold, uh, Golden Sun. Lysander is in Golden Sun originally. He is in Golden Sun. Yeah, he's abducted at the gala. Okay. We know he's kind of a wonderkind of sorts, mm-hmm. but this is, this is insane. The amount of information that he's able to take in. This is, this is crazy. It's super cool. Super cool to see him take it down. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, he is, he is a wonderkind. He is a genius. He's in some ways a tortured genius, which is maybe a weird stereotype to place on Lysander, but I really, really kind of enjoy the extent of, of the character that we start to see explored further and further and further as we've continued forward. So I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. The trick of the wine and the wine cellar is a fantastic one for go Rosties, And they share a moment of celebration as Lysander has survived and returned from the grave. The sort of cheap Thessalonican wine that was up top that he spits out and reviles. Uh, he then, you know, returns to the basement. He's like, you know, we should share uh, champagne and share a glass because, you know, returning from the dead, it's fantastic. And it's kind of nice to see Gil Rossi's kind of warm up in this way. Afterwards, Gil Rossi says something interesting bl- after blaming Nero, Cassius and Roke for the current situation of the society's downfall. Frankly, your re- ranks are replete with idiots. So many. In fact, one might suspect If they were a little poorer, a little more victimized, a little more burdened with trial, they might have had the common sense to band together instead of sniping each other in the uh, in an operatic game of emotional suicide chess. And I think that is such a brilliant way to put this book series as a whole. It is a fantastic quote from this character as well. This sort of artist of of whom I imagine to be sort of in, in a way a interesting mickey replacement in a way yeah you know where like mickey used to occupy he occupies a very similar space in the story right now so narratively not so much uh yes yeah narratively correct exactly i feel like i just have to bring it up because you said his name several times would you say that the audiobooks are an authority on uh pronunciation within this book so are you gonna go with the cassius because they're no, two of the narrators no. pronounce it differently. Okay, no, I'm going with Gilrostes. It probably depends on the narrator, even the Lysander narrator. What's he say? Gilrastes. Gilrastes. Okay. I just found that funny. That is, we were debating that like a week ago. We were, we were exactly <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, debating that. 
Yeah. And mm. I, I finally like paid attention to how he actually pronounced it. I guess Gilrostes might have a, you've got two consonants in the way. Yeah. So it's not a long sound. No. Yeah. The only way it'd be a raw is if you uh, either added a second A or if you put an H in there. So it is Gilrace, Gil, Gilrostes. That's how we say Gilrastes. No, no, no. Sorry. What he was says it? Gil- Gilrastes. Gilrastes. Gilrastes is correct. Yes. It is Gilrastes. So that- it is completely different than how we've always said it. Correct. Okay. Does that mean I'm going to change? Absolutely. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Should we? I am inconsistent as hell. If nothing, <laughs> I am the most inconsistently, cons- consistently inconsistent person yep. here. So, yeah, uh, yep. Fair. Atalantia, Atlantia, at Adel, Adeltalia, every once in a while, Atlanta. I don't know. <laughs> you anyway. say Atlanta a lot. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we're, we, we fall into a groove. Like, right <laughs> away when there's a new character, we kind of, like bounce around a little bit but we we fall into a groove and seem to like keep with it sorry completely off topic i just figured i'd mention that because i don't know i just thought of it and you said his name a bunch of times there's a little bit of a conversation on how gil rosties came to be working for darrow a little bit and and one of the main points that he brings up is after the after the rising a lot of the gold seemed to kind of double down on their cruelty, I guess. What's the quote? I can't remember the quote exactly. Where Where is that at? Shit. Because I, I feel like it's a really good quote. Like the, the gold seemed to feel like it was their fault for being more lax that this happened. So they doubled down on, on their cruelty towards the low colors. Gold became cruel after the fall, beyond cruel. As if it were their laxity that led to rebellion. Darrow's right in some things, you know, the metal miners here barely live past 30, and the slaves, they actually call them that now, not contractors or pioneers, slaves. I just didn't realize the price my planet, my home would have to pay for my spasm of hope. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the quote I'm thinking of. God, it's interesting. And it makes total sense that somebody that's even not necessarily for the rising would see that response. And be like, all right, fuck them. I'll work for these guys. Because that's not cool. That's not what this was all about. That's not why this came to be. This came to be because you were too cruel. Yeah. And they don't, they also don't realize the sort of restrictions that they place on them in the first place that led to this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, there's, there's a number of issues with Gil Rostis that I find fascinating and sort of contradictions and positives. But in general, he seems to be more, pro-rising than pro-society but he also likes Slysander enough to stand with him so that makes it kind of an interesting thing you yeah. know like uh, Gilrostes doesn't strictly support Lysander in his conquest and thinks that his goal of like supporting Atalantia is going to be a bad one in the end and you know she would lead to a much much worse life for a lot of colors all while he kind of continues to support her as the good guy I don't know but then, you know, he goes and fucks it up by playing against, you know, by Lysander playing it against his ego and being like, well, you know, there's there's some stuff here. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. What would you read into that? I kind of read it as the two party system in a way. And Gilrostes is choosing what he sees to be the lesser of two evils. And Lysander comes in with a third party option. That's kind of okay. that's kind of the the vibe I got off of all this. 
Gilrastes was against, inherently against what Atalantia was doing, and Darrow was doing the exact opposite. But he he didn't necessarily disagree with the original core tenets of the society that was built up. And Lysander is presenting more of those themes. So it's a pretty, not easy, but an easier way to sway him into an allegiance with Lysander, approaching it from that direction. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can definitely see that. I think it connects enough of the dots. I would say one of the big differences, of course, is that I think that in a lot of ways he sees the good in Darrow I don't know that he agrees so much with the previous society tenants, but he also sees he sees more good and more history in Lysander, his good dear friend, one of his few friends, apparently, you know, in, in his entirety of his life. So I, I think that he he sides with that, of course, a, a little bit stronger, a little bit more clearly. And he, he can believe in Lysander leading something better than either of the other two. So. Right. It's part of the reason he chooses that. There are, of course, other connotations that happen at the end with other folks, but we'll get to that in a moment. Hey, PJ, can you guess who wrote the poem on page 540 when that Lysander recites to Gil Rostes? Um, oh, I know this. I know this one. It's Stephen King, right? Because Stephen King is such a poet. Actually, he's in his short story collections. He's published a number of pieces. Of this poetry. is why uh, I said that, Crossland, because you... But- as though Go Pierce Brown was going to put Stephen King into the fucking book. PJ, it's Ruyard Kipling, of course. Who who else would it be except for our boy, Ruyard Kipling? Our uh, boy. This poem, our boy. <laughs> this poem is called Cities and Thrones and Powers. It's a short three stanza poem. Highly recommend everyone read it. it it's, it's great. He's clearly quoting it in order to kind of evoke a call to works that will outlast the maker and so lysander is kind of directly tying that into gil rossi's ego as he remembers kind of his favorite poem and he recites it to him it's interesting because it also ties into the conversation a little bit later that happens about the blind copper a little bit if you read the whole poem but we'll we'll talk about that in a second mm-hmm. more curious of course is that this was a commission for a city in space for Quicksilver. And there's a lot of questions left here. Any, do you have any thoughts on the Oculus and, and kind of what it is? So from the initial like commission, the intention was to create it for quote, a child who had never seen anything else. And Gilrastes seems to think that's metaphorical. And I don't think it is coming from Quicksilver. Before the rising, I'm I'm assuming that means before the fall of the society, right? Is that how that would be interpreted? Yeah, I'd I'd think so. Like the the actual like point where the society fell would be considered the rising in this Mm -hmm. context. Yeah. So Pax is already, or Mustang's already pregnant at this point. So I think that the Oculus is uh intended for Pax to grow up on if they if they don't succeed in their uh their plan their goals to overthrow the society the oculus would be a place for Pax to grow and and be raised 
without having to worry so much about the society and the war that would be going on between Darrow and Octavia. It'd be, it'd be a safe, a safe haven. So that's my, that's my thought. My initial thought based on that description of for a child who has never seen anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me kind of of, in a way of Aristotle's cave, right? Which is that emerging into something that you don't know or understand if you, you know, and that feels like a very quicksilver thing for him to draw upon, right? Where, you you don't understand anything else and so this is what you what you love what you enjoy and it kind of functions as a as a reset a removal from the current game status quo life existence and i think that's an interesting concept for some someone like quick to consider right so yeah definitely so we we obviously talked about the roadyard poem a little bit earlier but i I think that it's important that we talk about the parable of the blind copper because it does actually lend Gil Rossi's a bigger picture of his life and its connection to the daffodil that's mentioned in the full poem that of like the fact that life kind of fades and dies around the things that that survive and, and pass it by but that it's important to consider that there was life there in the first place in order for it to even matter that the that the works outlive the maker so the the blind copper in a way serves as a beautiful I think even maybe better, more explicit rendition of the poem and sort of the poetic combination of the two is, is fantastic. What'd you think? I love the story. I think what I love most is it's greater application to all of art. Basically essentially shows or, or talks about how art is meant to be consumed or enjoyed or surrounded or, experienced and that there there needs to be people around it in order for it to matter at all i don't know i i thought it was yeah i thought it was a beautiful sort of breakdown of what it meant what what art means <laughs> you know i i think i mentioned this joke uh, a long time ago i want to say it was like back in morningstar golden sun or something like that but there is a joke that Mike Kaplan has where he he's like, you know, what's what's comedy if no one laughs? Tragedy. Like <laughs> if no one's there to like remark is is it is it really art? You know, and comedy yeah. is often criticized as one of the few things that, you know, is, is, is it even art? You can question it. But it truly like I think all art without people to scrutinize it is potentially not art. So it's the more hands it's in, the better off it is. The more people that are around to see it, the better off it is versus having it, you know contained or having no one alive to to see it i totally agree the chapter ends with gil rossi's placing his trust in lysander to help save the people of the city and exeter and the other colors bowing to the heir of selenius and damn what a turn the table has taken yeah i i don't know if it's that much of a turn like it's a little bit but clearly gil rossi's was conflicted about darrow and his recent actions he wasn't and still isn't for Atalantia, but he does trust Lysander. Took a little bit, a little bit of sort of pushing from Lysander's part, but with Exeter and the other gold or the other colors, um, all coming in and bowing to him and like pledging their allegiance to him, that was all done outside of Gilrastes. 
Gilraists. Sorry, we're saying Gilraists now, aren't we? <laughs> it's fine. No, we're we're saying it correctly. Gilraists. I'm assuming they would have done that either way. Especially for the fact that they ignored Gilraists when he says to stay out. They come in anyway and kneel to him. So, I don't know. There's a turn, to be sure, but I, I don't think it's a big one. <sighs> yeah, it's... I, I think that the big turn is sort of the, the low colors respecting Lysander and the heir of Selenius and choosing that path, more or less. Like, we've we've seen a couple of different examples, but that's really kind of my, my turntables is, you know, here we have more people worshipping at the throne of the Seleniuses, and, and damn, there are people who can't break that mental block of the repression of the society. Yeah. Here we are. Didn't, yeah. didn't assume that they would be here. I think you're right. Cool. With that, we move into chapter 65, Lyria Ulysses. Ulysses? Ulysses? Ulysses is how I would say it, but... Ulysses, yeah. Ulysses is proper. Ulysses is correct. Ulysses? It's... <laughs> Hermy one? <laughs> uh, I'm convinced. All right, first of all... That's not right. No. <laughs> I don't remember it. I'm convinced that I said that. In in my head, I would, I'm I'm convinced. In my head, I said, "Say this as wrong as fucking possible." That still then, could be considered right. You said it wrong so many times, differently, and none of them were correct. I think all of them are correct. I think you're wrong. None of them were correct. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely uh, don't remember like what we were talking about. That was such a long episode. Fuck. That was a that was a that wasn't this last episode. Oh no, this was two before episodes. that. This is Yeah, right. Never mind. That was a very drunk episode. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so with that, chapter sixty five, Lyria Ulysses. Right off the bat, in some form, we get confirmation that Victor for sure has an understanding of what's going on with Lyria, and as she's dubbed it, the parasite. But more interesting part of the intro, of course, is that they've been running through the woods for the better part of two weeks, and the pressure is mounting as they insult each other, as everything has been going on between them. I, I love the banter between the women here and finding Victra's insults to kind of be this comforting humor while they're trying to figure out what to do next. Mm-hmm. She's talking about Volga when she says she means you look like an electrocuted rock monster. And I just get this like sense of like British snark off the whole thing. It's just fantastic. Yeah. But there's clearly an affection here between the, the group of them as they lay out their plans to call Victor's house troops. Mm-hmm. Of they, they talk a lot about how there were insults thrown back and forth for the entire time that they were traveling together. But of the ones that are actually said on page my favorite is victor calling volga a geriatric walrus <laughs> like that is oh absolutely my, God, yeah. my favorite one yeah that one there were so many in good individual call outs and moments here between between mm-hmm. the group of them but i they, there is some some camaraderie being cultivated but I, I feel like this chapter is where it really comes to a head and they really kind of grow together. I, I feel like those those insults and those comments were probably not actually coming from a place of friendly ribbing each other. It was it was tense and genuinely so. That's kind of the, the vibe I got. Yeah, I mean, definitely tense. 
there's definitely a lot of of kind of like they're like you said camaraderie is definitely the right word they're they're growing closer but you know it's not it's not perfect of course there's still some stress inside of the relationships mm-hmm. exactly yeah. and they they come upon a quaint house and a family down in the village after victro's water breaks which we find out later that she's been holding in for a long time <laughs> and just can't hold it anymore right. uh, and move in temp- temporarily with cormac o vadros as well as all red and brea victor quickly makes her way back to a room after demanding strong liquor and says she'll give birth standing she after receiving the water and alcohol also hands a cryptogram to volga for the transmitter array later what do you make of the whole scene that we get here we get a lot of information in kind of a short period of time but yeah it's pretty rapid fire but mm-hmm. as far as cormac goes who is kind of the most important part of this whole thing i didn't trust him off the bat in hindsight that's for good reason but my first experience reading this i did not trust him in the slightest from the beginning he was too accepting and too calm about this entire thing we know reds are very kind of spitfirey and for the most part are either just kind of dickheads or they're kind of grovelly towards golds and he was just right in the middle and that didn't make sense for a red for for some reason, it was just super off-putting for me. So, off the bat, I was so goddamn suspicious of him the entire time. And it turns out, me being suspicious didn't save anybody. But, you know, there's that. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't trust the man. Especially with a name like Cormac. Like, who the fuck trusts anyone with a name like Cormac? The only Cormac I know is McCarthy, and he's damaged me via so many different books that I don't is know he how still to explain alive? properly. Yeah, he's he's still alive. How old is he? I don't know that answer. I would bet he's got to be in his 60s. Holy shit, he's older than that. He's 88. Yeah, I was going to say, like, he's got to be close to close to 100. He, I guess he's closer to 100 than 60. But, you know, he, he wrote The Road, I guess, when he was like 70-ish. So almost. So, wow. Yeah. That, really? <laughs> is that recent? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that was, that was, I feel like that was regarded as a classic when, when we were in high school. 2006? Yeah, it was an instant classic. Wow. I did yeah. not realize no. that. Cormac McCarthy is one of the most well-regarded writers of all time. He's a fucking, what is he, what do they call those scholars? Um, Rhodes? Uh, no, 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 sorry. It's a MacArthur Fellowship. So he, like, literally is just paid for by a fellow, like, his life is basically just paid for $500,000 for like 10 years or something like that, or five years. So in addition to whatever you do is just yours. They just pay for you to live for a period. So you can continue the work that you're doing. Anyway, I really love the confrontation that happens between Victor and Lyria as she's standing against the wall about to give about kind of the difference between the births and the cultures of the colors. It's excellent to see her stand up for herself in, you know, a, a context as she's staring this gold staring down this gold that's standing up and giving birth and to push to offer help and also fascinating to compare the two cultures of course it to me the like gold's always doing this by themselves is just very very wow you know it's fucking border crazy. quality control man it's fucking crazy the the fact that lyria stood up for herself a little bit and really spoke up 
and was actually able to, to a certain extent, change Victra's mind on the, uh, the requirement that she set forward for Lyria that she would have to be absent for the birth. That's such a big deal. And it kind of gets glossed over a little bit, I feel like. But it's such a cool section of growth on a personal level from from both of these characters, Lyria and Victra. I don't know. I I really enjoyed seeing them grow in that way. I did too. I... I really, I really enjoy the conversation that they have surrounding kind of uh, Lyria's sister and the birth and and cutting the umbilical cord and sort of the the symbology there, the symbolism there between the two of them and why why wouldn't she do it? Why wouldn't she do it? And it's like, well, it wasn't about that. It's about the sort of group culture. It's about working together, not about the individual. And Victor obviously has this very um, sort of aggressive speech i would say that talks about the fact that she forged herself right uh which Mm -hmm. i i think is you know very very important and i'm I'm gonna read the excerpt here because i think it is it's great they're they're of course starting with what with what fig gave you when she died you won't have to wait long what is it i don't know not entirely but it it was what made Fig Fig different. I am different. I know that. I had things you didn't. But I saw evil too. Only differences you saw the bottom, I saw the top. I wasn't born the woman I am. I made me. That's the problem with your people. You're arrogant. So busy preaching you need a clan to do everything. But take the clan away and you fall apart. Like you did in that cell. So easy to blame others for failing you. For leaving you. For mistreating you. Some things are about the power of one with what you have in your head. You need to know that. Now, if you can exist without tormenting me with sympathy, I'll show you what a woman can do by herself. But first, be a dear and tell Volga to tie up our hosts. As an unctuous girl once said, we don't know them. Yeah. It's great. It's great. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. This is something that I feel like Lyria would have just straight up dismissed Victra for in Iron Gold. I think she would have just chalked her up to another gold that doesn't understand what it means to be red. The fact that she doesn't do that proves proves the growth, proves how mm-hmm. much she's progressed. I felt like it was really cool to see yeah. all of this. This this entire chapter, I feel like there's a ton of Lyria growth that we just kind of see if we're paying attention. It felt like it was really cool. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. I feel like Lyria has only grown in in massive ways inside of the story. She, of course, also, after the delivery of Ulysses, says, Ulysses says, welcome to the worlds to him, which I think is a a great callback to what the Sovereign says in the Hollows when the Reds emerged from their minds as well. And it's just got this, this wonderful, fantastic, sweet tone to it. And... At the same time, with what we know happens, it is harrowing as far as a comparison goes because it was also sort of a a death knell in a way. But in the moment, it's a really, really beautiful moment between the three of them together. Mm-hmm. But like like you mentioned, that's ignoring the the what's to come. Not not good stuff. I'd uh, I'd venture to say pretty bad yeah 
I would say that it goes very poorly. We are about to have a really bad time talking about one of my the moments that sticks out with me inside of this entire novel. So with that, the benediction to end the chapter, I think, is just so sweet and wonderful. And the the son that Eusilis is that Victor and Severo have is just so, so fantastic. We've obviously been talking about sort of the build here, but I, I love the beautiful little speech that she gives mm-hmm. to him here. It's that sort of warm, embracing tone, and it just makes makes what's about to happen so much worse. Yeah, I loved it in the moment. It was a it was a super cool chapter. Just um, an expose, a little bit on tradition, all the way through, and and we see this with this, uh, as you called it, the benediction of Ulysses. Mm-hmm. And God, it's cool. It's so cool. It's so touching. It doesn't mean shit anymore. You know? Mm-hmm. It's almost immediately invalidated. So yeah. it's it's unfortunate for sure. Mm-hmm. With that, we go into chapter 66, Lyria, the Julii's bill. But of course, as we know, the bill comes due at the end. I mean, if you're Ulysses, it comes at the beginning, I guess. Oh, <laughs> prepaid that shit. <laughs> Savage commentary. That aside. was a great response. That was a wonderful <laughs> response. And it completely caught me off guard. That will forever hurt me that I said that out loud. So <laughs> Volga's confession about also not having a womb is a really sad one. And sort of the price that lives over her right to have a child, I think, is just downright awful for her. People say that children are expensive, but 20 million credits, as we know from the payouts that they received, is just grotesquely expensive. Was it 20 million or 20,000? I think it was 20 million. Was it not? Oh, man. Let's 20 million. Yeah. It's 20 million. Okay. Insane. But I'm curious, going back to Iron Gold, I'm curious Mm. if this is somehow connected to her infinity with animals in the zoo and if she actually wanted to open a zoo on earth or if she just didn't want to talk about her true desires of going through with a surgery like this and uh having kids of her own i i think there's an argument that exists for sure that you know would say that the reason that she knows the cost is because she's investigated it and it's probably because she probably wanted kids of her own she seems like, you know, despite the the sort of naivete that kind of comes with a lot of obsidians, you know, just kind of part of the package from the way that they were raised, she is very caring and very kind and would make mm-hmm. an excellent mother. And that's also why I pro her having a zoo, of course. But I I think I totally agree with you. I hadn't thought about that before. Be be curious. But yeah, like she obviously wants the option to have kids. She's clearly looked into this procedure and what it costs because she knows what it costs and she she had this real passion when she was talking to leary about it it was it was intense this Mm -hmm. is something that she really really genuinely cares about yeah without a doubt oh man it is it is something that she really cares about and i wish you know wish that she you know had had the option and i guess we'll get to explore probably her more i don't know maybe who knows 
But it all explodes in classic Piercy Boy fashion. Bria is revealed to be the wife of Cormac, who's been in the house. Also, she cuts her hand open to put her red hand on the window to signal to Lyria since she cannot speak. Allred is blown to bits by Lyria upon re-entering the house, and Cormac is revealed to be a member of the Red Hand as well. Hell, the whole village might could be <laughs> a member of the Red Hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victra, of course, runs away with Ulysses swaddled while Lyria is trying to take care of Bria, coming to the realization that this is actually, you know, his wife, of course, is mentioned. She runs after Victor, chasing her up a hill into the highlands, losing her tracks a couple of times. She makes her way back to the village, inspecting a splash of blood and a a number of kind of corpses strewn about and finds Ulysses nailed upside down to the trunk of a tree. Oh, fuck, man. This is the worst ending that you've given me so far. Like, this, this is fucking terrible, man. This is horrifying. This one hurts, dude. Yeah. Like, there's there's no other way of putting it. Like, this is painful. We've known about this kid that's been coming for books now. And it's came due at the same time as the bill for the Julii. Mm-hmm. It's fucking awful. Does paint a really despicable picture for the red hand, though, of course. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's There's definitely something there. Did you have any other thoughts on the way that this chapter ends um, before, you know, but before and including the death of Ulysses? I just I just feel like there were so many red flags. I feel like there were so many problems and and God, I I wish they would have heeded them. Yeah, I mean, they didn't they didn't want to do the evil thing and kill the evil people. Right. Especially when we put these chapters right up next to each other. With the conversations we've been having with Lysander and Atlas for a good chunk of of this story, it's tough to comprehend and chew even. Atlas has constantly said evil deeds, you know, begetting eviler deeds and kind of that that whole conversation. And how does one extract revenge? And is this revenge against the Julii for the stuff that happened in the mines that was explained here as well? Is this there there are any number of of components that that come due? Some of which Victra had nothing to do with, you know, or or so little to do with because she was in her youth. You know, there's hmm, there's a lot of trouble there. Yeah. All right. So, PJ, that is it for this week. With that, we move into PJ's predictions. Your first prediction here is, does Darrow sniff out Lysander's stink? You think? Nope. I think Lysander <laughs> will... <laughs> I think Lysander will reveal himself after it's no longer advantageous for Darrow to know. Shit's going down anyway. So, really, I, I think Lysander will reveal himself, and Darrow will learn who Lysander is. But I think it, from from the perspective of Lysander, it'll be too little, too late. I don't know if that'll be sure. true. But from his perspective, he'll choose when to reveal himself as opposed to getting found out. Okay. All right. So next question here. Lysander knows about the project Gil Rostis is working on from some comments along with his own deductions. Gil race, whatever. While looking at the telescope, what does he do with that information? Or he'll, he'll be using the information to think up ways to use it against Darrow. And collaborating will, with Gil Rastes on how to navigate lying about what he's doing and uh, 
the progress that he's making on the project and and because obviously all right i'm going back i gil rosti's is right there's no way it's not that sounds way better <laughs> fuck the narrator <laughs> gil rosti's yeah i can't i can't do it i i can't do gil raced <laughs> but gil rosti's is obviously going to be the one that's great at m- designing things but Lysander mm-hmm. will be able to kind of help in more of the social aspects of things and how to manipulate everybody into not understanding what Gorostis is actually doing with it in a way that kind of pulls out the rug from under him. That's my assumption. That's a convoluted, long-winded answer, but do you, do you, can you understand where I'm coming from with it? Yeah, yeah, I, I, totally, okay. I, I totally see where you're coming from with it. Okay, cool. So, at the end of this week, Lyria is left cold and alone with the corpse of the youngest Barca nailed to a tree. What, if anything, does Lyria do in reprisal? I think, first and foremost, she's going to try to think of what a gold funeral tradition would be. And I don't think she'll be able to think of one. So, she'll give the child a funeral from her own traditions. Sort of a a red funeral. Maybe not exactly, but inspired by it. Because that's better than leaving it nailed up to the tree. And (sighs) from there, I think she'll go try to find Volga. And then, assuming she does find Volga, the two of them will do what they can to go after Vectra. Okay. All right. So, with that, we would generally move on to our question of the week. Because of the week that we are having, we are actually repeating the same question that we offered last week. So, we'll be gathering these answers. So, get them in as soon as you can to us uh, via Discord, Instagram, Twitter, email, whichever way, of course. Mm-hmm. So, for next week, what is your favorite escape that someone has made? We discussed last week, like, Indiana Jones... Uh, like uh, fucking uh, Ripley from the Aliens movies blasting away at the end. You know, what's what's your favorite escape? Yes. And, I mean, it doesn't have to be fiction. It can be historical as well. Whatever whatever, you're, whatever tickles your fancy, we, we are not letting that come to a head this week because we are recording this before last week's episode actually goes live. So a little behind the scenes yes. for you there. Out of necessity. So with that, next week you'll be reading chapters 67 through 71. This is, I think, the shortest section we've ever read somewhere in the realm of like 38 pages. pages. 36. Is it? Yeah, 36. 36 pages. This is the shortest section we've ever read, ever, by a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a quick one, but it'll, it'll be important. So get those answers in and... um We'll, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. So that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you, as always, Tim and Andrew, our producers, for keeping everything going for us. Check out the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our socials, all in one very convenient location. Yeah. Make sure to check those out, of course, um, on our Instagram this month, we actually have a giveaway going on for a little goblin from PB Doodles. Give that a check. All you have to do is tag a friend, leave a comment. It's it's great. It's easy. That's it. That's all. Get your entry in. You can also enter just simply by being a member of our Patreon. 
either works for us. We've got a ton of back catalog content that you might be interested in, including conversations with PJ, where PJ leads a show about movies, one where I talk with our editor, Andrew, about music, and another where uh, Tim and I explore random, interesting, speculative topics to us. So thank you so much for the support. It really means the world to us. We're stoked, of course. Can't wait to talk to you next week about Dark Age. Yes. It'll be wonderful. 